1: Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome folks to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, uh, going solo today, no co-host. We'll talk about that a little bit later. 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call in and speak to me. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our website, our show website, that is blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. If you don't have the means to do that and you just want to listen via the call in line, by all means do so. Well, let's start our show first with. Uh, a little recap. Uh last week not last week, our last show, seems like a long time that we were on live. I'm looking at the calendar it was uh Tuesday, November twenty fourth, Thanksgiving week. And uh we did a show on one of the unwritten philosophies. You can't keep it unless you give it away, which we are now calling as a part of the Elite Eight. If some of you remember, uh, some time ago, maybe earlier in the year, we did a show on the core four of the Unwritten Philosophies. And our co-host was uh, quick enough to come up with a name for the Elite Eight that we're going to do. So the next time, uh, so we've got five in, three more to do to finish out the Elite Eight. But we've also had a twist to that. So we know the, the regular unwritten philosophy was you can't keep it unless you give it away. And then we, well, I added uh, that uh, you better not keep it and you must give it away. And just so in case anyone didn't catch the show, uh, you can't keep it unless you give it away. In a nutshell, is about sharing the knowledge, the knowledge you've gained in treatment, the knowledge you've gained from life experience. The more you share it, the more you reinforce the positive aspects of what you have learned. And yourself. And then the twist to that, you better not keep it, you better and you must give it away, speaks to the those things that we don't want to talk about in treatment. The things we don't want to share that uh sometimes gotta be dragged out of us. We don't want to keep those things, certainly. We wanna purge them, we wanna share them, we wanna uh put the burden, spread the burden around to others. And so I said, you must give those things away. You don't want to leave. You don't want to start your recovery uh, process and still have uh, unconfronted feelings is what we would use to call them. So that's that on our recap of our previous show. Uh, let's go to a part of the show that I like. A co-host last week said it was his favorite part of the show. I'm going to have to call him out on that, but... I'm still going to talk a little bit of football My Giants lost To the New York Jets uh, That's one of those games When the two, two New York teams are facing each other That you're just torn Both of them fighting for the playoffs Both of them fighting for uh, Positions within the division And uh, one of them had to lose Um so it's one of those games you watch with one eye, one one hand over your eye, because either way you're not going to like the, the the result, one way or the other. So the Jets beat the Giants, and which has now forced the Giants to be in a three-way tie in the NFL East. But uh,
2: how about them Cowboys?
1: Yes. How about those Dallas Cowboys beating those Washington Redskins last night? So now this make this has made the division such a crazy division because now anyone can win it, and I doubt anyone with a winning record is going to win that division. So since the co-host is not here to talk about his favorite team, the uh, Forty ers I mean the Forty Niners, uh, we'll we'll leave that for him when he returns. I'm certainly not going to spend any of my oxygen talking about a uh, San Francisco-based team, any of them. I don't root for any of the teams, the local teams. It's just against my uh, every fiber of my being, how my own daughters have betrayed me and become fans of the local teams. To this day, I can't figure out. I, I did everything, thought I did everything right, thought I did everything I was supposed to do that I should have done as a father to make sure that they root for the teams that they're supposed to root for. But I failed. <laughs> I want to go back to a show, another show we did um, in early November. We had a guest on, Odell Johnson, who did a show on, uh, the topic was mindfulness and recovery, something that he spoke in depth on uh and also spoke about his efforts to embed this philosophy of of how you approach uh treatment and recovery in the local jails. I want to bring on uh in, in just in this part of in this segment of our show, I want to bring on a friend of the show who I believe is on hold right now if I recognize her number, um, who's been waiting for a few weeks to speak about her experiences. She wanted to actually speak when uh, we had Odell on, but we didn't, uh, we, we were confused about something on the studio and didn't recognize that uh, she was uh, waiting to uh, speak on the subject. Anyway, uh, what's intriguing about what you want to speak about is that she's worked with addicts, and she'll clarify this, um, either who were just out of jail or were. And, and then came into treatment or, or worked with them in the jail. I'll let her clarify that. But she had uh, some unique methods of working with this population that I thought was important for our um, listeners to hear. So I wanted to uh, bring on Ms. Jackson. Are you there?
3: Yes. Hello. How are you?
1: Fine, thank you. How are you?
3: Okay, a little nervous.
1: That's all right. Um, we spoke a little bit offline um, and you 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 kind of wrote to me and told me about some of the methods that you had, had used and some groups that you had done. Now, did you do this um, in, in, in Daytop or was this inside the jails, the local jails back in New York?
3: Daytop, Queen Outreach.
1: Okay. So tell us what it is about because I found it very interesting, unique. I even told you I was going to steal it. So tell us what kind of groups you did and, and, and what it was about.
3: Okay, um, I did a group on men returning from prison, returning to society. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And
3: why I did this group, and I feel I was good at it, because my husband had 25 to life. I visited him for 15 years, Mm
2: -hmm. and
3: I got to know the system. So when I had a, a client come in and committed a crime to return back to prison because he could not adjust to society on the outside after being in prison for over 20 years. I decided to um, run a group on my experiences being a woman, having a man in prison to help men that have been in prison, readjust to society.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: And... um. It went very well. It really did. We talked about men coming out of prison and not being able to, like, get really back into a relationship with their families, wife, children, or girlfriends. And a lot of those reasons were because they had been in prison so long, they adjusted to being on the inside. Mm -hmm. So what I had to do was, or what we had to do as a group and, um, a team was to make them recognize what they were doing wrong and how to correct it. And the first thing that I made them aware of, how you can identify a man just coming out of prison, small handwriting. So what I did, because I did intakes also, was build a relationship of respect with them first to let them understand that um, you did your time, whatever it was. And now that you're out here in order to remain out here, you need to learn how to live on the outside. So we um, identified some of the faults that they had from being in prison so long, laying in one spot, not moving. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I would, tell them to sleep on the floor is a bigger space so that you can learn to move around. You're not confined because this is what you have to do. Another one was taking showers, not realizing that you can take a bath now,
2: Right. not
3: realizing that your feet are so ashy because you never really washed them. You just stood up there in the shower. So they were taught to, First, get used to the water. Get to the, used to the tub. By just putting his hand in there. And then a, the next time, you put a little bit of your feet in there. And then before you know it, you're able to put your whole body in there and just sit there and relax and learn how to wash yourself. Mm-hmm. So they learned that. We ta- I taught them, taught them how to go shopping. A lot of them will come home and still wear their greens. So I would have to teach them how to hang that up, look at that uniform that you wore for maybe five, six years, 15 years, and realize that you're not that same person. You don't have to wear that color. You don't have to wear that outfit. So they were told to go look in the store window. Then go try something on. Don't buy it. Just try it on. See how it look on you. And if you liked it the way it looked, put it back. Go back. Look at that uniform and make a decision on which one, Which, how did you want to look now? And then they would end up buying clothes, different clothes,
2: mm-hmm. changing
3: their look and stuff like that. And I also taught their wives, taught them how their wives were so angry about them coming out now and still living the same way. I had to teach the wives that it was time to tell them why you were angry, what abuse you went through, being touched by God, being asked to bring in drugs, being asked to go shop for um, a trailer visit when at home, You need a food to put in the refrigerator for children. Mm -hmm. So he would understand, the inmate would understand, not the inmate, I'm sorry. The client now would understand why the relationship was like it was, why she was so angry. And a lot of them didn't know that the wives were going through this. Mm -hmm. So what we had to do was rebuild relationships, but teach the, the wife and the client what both of them have went through. And then we would talk about how much the client wanted to tell his wife. A lot of clients have been sexually abused in prison. Mm-hmm. Do you need to tell all of that? No, you don't. What you need to do is go to therapy. Work on the issues that you feel cause you not to be able to sexually react the way you need to at home. Mm-hmm. Find out, you know, if you are, if you feel like you just want to be with a guy now or do you want to be with her. Find mm-hmm. out if you even need to tell her about this here. And a lot mm-hmm. of times we didn't. we didn't have to talk about that. And the reason for that was because you discussed with me. So now it's up to you if you want to relate to that. But in doing so, I would play the role of the wife and let him know how he could mess this whole relationship up by telling her something like that, but mm-hmm. still leaving it for him to make that decision. If I want to tell her, why am I telling her this? Is it for me or is it for her? Right. So it was his decision. Um, another thing that we had to do, we had to build relationship with children. And the best way for him to do that was not to come home and play daddy. You've been going 15 years. Be this child friend. Get to know the child and let the child get to know you. Let the child do most of the talking and you listen.
2: Mm-hmm. And how
3: we did that was that the best way to talk to a child on any situation is not face-to-face, walk, hold hands, build a relationship with this child as your friend, help him begin to trust you again.
2: Mhm,
3: Certain things you have to do, like don't make promises unless you're gonna keep them because children remember those things right play dates take take the children on dates. you know you don't take all of them together. you have to build a relationship with each one of these children, and it worked out really well. it really did um. Yeah. One inmate couldn't deal with it at all. He went back to prison. And from prison, he felt more comfortable being there so long. He felt comfortable being on the inside than he did on the outside. And he asked me if I would explain that in court, and, of course, I couldn't because Daytop have rules and regulations also
4: that right. certain
3: that you can't do unless you go through the legal department. Right. So when it came to that, I went and I let the supervisor know, supervisor let legal know, and legal handled that. But otherwise, everything
4: went really well.
3: And one of the biggest issues was men coming out of prison, and they women, wives, girlfriends, baby mothers, have had other men mm-hmm. and even other children. So my thing to them was that was, you raised this child from prison as your own. This child visits you and calls you daddy. Mhm. Is that is your decision now to walk away from the child? You may not be his birth father, but you are his daddy, you are his father. Right. Another thing was, who are you trying who are you trying to appease yourself, the wife Baby, mama, girlfriend, other child—all these years in your heart, it was your child. He's still your child, even though you didn't give him birth. You knew when she came that she was pregnant. Your own, see, and the whole thing—how it worked was—I had to be really raw and honest with the with the guys. Yep. Not just to pacify them, right? But to let them know you accepted her coming up there you accepted gifts, you accepted clothes, you accepted money, you accepted food, and now, because you're out here and your family is saying to you, that child isn't yours. Who do you stay with? But it always would be the decision of the client, what he want to do. My job was just to make him realize certain things, but I, I was never... I never would tell him what to do but give right. him things to think about or what he would do. Right. And if he needed a family session where we could sit down together and explain to his wife or his girl or whoever what was going on, I would have family sessions with them. And it really worked. You know, I would um, recommend having a group like that for all treatment programs. It's hard to just come out of prison and think that this man going to come out here, get a job, going to take care of you when he's been in jail 20 years. Those diplomas, graduation, college and all of that stuff don't work out on the outside. Right. So easier for a counselor or a therapy to have this session and explain it to her how it really is for her to look at him every day. And you're not doing nothing. You can't get right. a job. So then it becomes an understanding between the two of them. And he has to be willing. You're a man now. You're out here. You're responsible. You want to reenter society. If you got to work at McDonald's in order to call yourself a father and a husband, then that's where you start at. The whole thing was to encourage, courage, encourage the client that he is not an inmate; he is somebody that has served his time that's worthy of being out here.
1: Let me ask you two questions.
3: Mm-hmm. I,
1: I haven't I have an idea of the answer to the first one, but I'm going to answer it anyway. W- what connection did you make between the handwriting and that they were inmates? Can you explain that?
3: Yes. Most guys that come out of prison write very small. The reason being is because they're not getting money all the time. They may be borrowing paper. So if I write small, I can write longer. I can write more. And it becomes a habit. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that you don't have people on the outside write small too. Mm -hmm. But a man coming out of prison writes extra small.
1: Okay. Do you think that you were effective in, in in facilitating that group more because you were a woman and able to um not only just be real and be raw wherever and whenever needed, but also be able to role play with them their reactions and and, and things that might might ha- that might happen from their wives, girlfriends, baby mamas, et cetera?
3: Yes, I do. I think because of having experience with a man being in prison, going on treatment mm-hmm. visits, standing on that line, um, buying groceries for the inside when I know I needed to buy shoes on the outside. Right. I think that they respected me being able to say, I am you. I've been there. I did that. I know how it feels to go visit a man and ride a bus all night. And when you get there, being stripped of your dignity and self-respect. Because the guards are going to search you. Mm -hmm. They're going to even search your baby diaper. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to tell him that. Because you are so afraid of him going back, getting in trouble. You hold on to all of that. So, yes, being a woman, I think I was a lot effective because I was able to play both roles. Mm-hmm. Um, the woman that went there and also explained to the guy that's on the outside now how he was treated when he went back to his cell or what he would have done if he knew what was going on in the outside. I think Right. That's true. Because I was a woman. Um, it was better to be able to explain to them and help them readjust. But I'm, I wasn't one of those, like, um, one of those sexy women or um, I was professionally dressed. Mm-hmm. I was about what I was doing. And Mm -hmm. I treated respect. And my thing was to them. I first met him. I'm not going to lie to you, for you, or on you. If you don't, you can stay in this group and be respectful. You can leave at any time. Right. There was rules from the beginning.
1: Right. On average, approximately how many men would be in the group?
3: I would say um, fifteen.
1: Okay. It's, it's a good and size. And
3: graduate and get a certificate. It was a six-week six, um, six week group. Mm-hmm. It oh, a 12-week group. Right. You get a certificate, you graduate, and I would um, give them a party where I would um, have their wives come in and their children and see that they did graduate and allow them to speak, and I would say, something about this person. Right. Like everybody was able to get a certificate and complete the group. And if their wife wanted to speak, they she could speak or say something also. And um, I bought them like little, like a little statue of 99 cents or something. Mm-hmm. With a and, you know, I made a big thing out of it. Balloons, right. food so that they could, you know, really understand you have did something.
1: You right, made them feel special. Yes. Okay. Miss Jackson, that uh, is very enlightening.
3: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: So I'll put you back on hold so you can continue to listen, hopefully, but we're going to take a short break.
3: Okay, thank you.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for sharing that with us.
3: You
1: too, and I hope your group runs
3: very well. I believe
1: right. a man can do it too. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
3: That
1: was uh, very enlightening, and one of the things I told her offline that, that I was going to steal it, not me personally, but that um, the theory of the, that group for that particular population um was very intriguing to me since ninety five and i'm I'm being conservative there a percent of our population comes out of the local jail or out, out of prison and obviously we have way more males than uh females and all of these issues are present and when she wrote about it to describe what it was i'd never it's the first time i've ever seen a heard about a group for that population and done in that manner. So our task is going to be finding someone that's going to facilitate it as uh, as well as she has. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to, I'm going to, by the way, I'm going to be all over the place today on different topics. I want to let you know that in advance. Um, so when we come back, um, I'll update you on what's going on with our uh, co-host and, uh, and then just take it from there.
0: You hear that? What you won't do, you do for love. You'll try anything, but you won't give up. That's the attitude you need to have in recovery. You've got to love or learn to love yourself first. You've got to be willing to try anything that will help you succeed. And most importantly, you can never give up visit us at ocgworks.org. OCG, where hope grows. Uh,
5: what you the sound of your
1: The dial to finish spinning when your when your broad, broad- uh broadband connection is looping and we have a fantastic connection here this just top notch uh every now and then it dips, so you click on something and you get a delay and that's what that was that you heard that delay um anyway. Our co-host and his family, unfortunately, experienced a loss this past weekend. Um, His father, unfortunately, passed away, uh, I believe, on late Friday or early Saturday morning. I don't recall us talking about him too much. Um, Most of our conversation um, earlier in the year, um, I think, centered around... um, his mother and when I say his mother and father biologically they're his grandparents but they raised him from a little tyke two, three years old because uh, father wasn't in the picture and mother um, was an addict um, still is in that life um, so they raised him from age two or uh, and somewhere in that age range and so that's all he knew as his parents um, As you are aware, his mother passed away in June or early July, I believe it was. Um, And the father had been diagnosed, I remember correctly, last year um, with leukemia. And so he'd been dealing with that. um, And I I think it's, it's okay to say, although the um uh, he'd been going through treatments and at a certain point not too long ago maybe within the last month or so um they stopped the treatments because at a certain point with leukemia uh the chemo or radiation treatments no longer are effective and so they just stopped them and you know from there it's, the doctors to the best of their knowledge give you and to tell you and the family, you know, how how long they think the person has. Uh, for those of you who don't know, leukemia is a blood uh, blood disease. And there's various types of leukemia. Um, some are very aggressive and some are less aggressive, and people can live 10, 15, 20 years with it. Um, in any event, um, his treatment had stopped, like I said, within the last month. But even with that, uh, we were talking you know, before we got on the air on our last show and during during breaks about what was going on with him. And um you know, there was no indication that he was uh, you know, n- near the end and and ready to uh transition. Um as a matter of fact he had when they made the decision that it was time to stop the treatment and the, you know, doctor told him that he had maybe, you know, six months or so to, to live. Um, uh, they cracked a joke to the family. The, the, the father has a biological son, which is, would make it actually Chris's, um, what would that be? Chris's cousin. We'll figure that out. But, um, Oh no, I'm sorry. Chris would be his nephew because it's the sisters their sisters' brother, so um so he went into if I if I understand correctly, um there was a hospital visit, I don't know if it was an emergency visit, but there was a hospital visit uh on either late Thursday or Friday, and um from that he you know, out of that he passed away. And so it, it is, you know, even though there's an expectation of some time in the future, you know, near in the future, six months or so, as they've been told, um, it's still kind of unexpected because you didn't expect, with, you know, within the two weeks from uh, when the doctor told you you have six months to live. So the family is dealing with that. Uh, Chris is dealing with that. Um So he's lost both of his parents in in a pretty short period of time. Um, Like I said, the mother in late June or early July, um, and now his dad in um, December, early December. So we want to make sure that uh, we think about him, think about his family, positive thoughts out there, um, prayers, uh, positive energy sending his way. Whatever works for you, um, I'm sure he'll be uh, very appreciative of it. Now, by no coincidence, and I know he's going to make fun of me when he comes back. It seems that every time when his mother passed away, I talked about the topic of death, um, and I when when I found out that his father passed away. I don't know. Something inside of me told me I wanted to talk about it again. Uh, And part of the reason, a couple of reasons. Number one, we weren't on the air last Tuesday, which was the first. um, And December 2nd is the anniversary of my friend Joe's passing, his his ninth. And uh, we appreciate a lot of the um, comments that were made on Facebook. Uh, for those who remembered him, worked with him, knew, uh, the alumni who knew him, etc. Uh, but so we, we missed being able to, uh, you know, just remember him. So we have now our co host father passing away. So I said, well, let me talk a little bit about a subject that uh, we don't talk about a lot. I'm kind of... Uh, I don't even know if lucky is the right word. You know, my, my mother uh, talked about death in such a matter-of-fact way. And at a certain point, we would look at her like, <laughs> you know, was she crazy? Not literally, but just figuratively, because, you know, we, we didn't hear other people or other parents, you know, talking about it. It was like this taboo subject. But she was very comfortable talking about it. And, you know, now, fortunately, as a, as an adult, Uh, I'm grateful that um, she was comfortable talking about it because it has allowed, um, I presume, my brothers and sisters, I can speak for myself certainly, uh, has allowed me to comfortably be able to talk about it. It certainly by no means means that uh, I know anything of what to say to someone who has experienced a loss. You know, my rule of thumb is the best thing to say often is to say nothing because what can you say? There's nothing to say. Um, And sometimes uh, the best thing to say is nothing. But from an intellectual perspective, the subject of death um, has been something, and even in my own family, my wife, my two daughters, um, we, we talk about it. Um, on an intellectual level, we've we've experienced it on an emotional level, um, people close to us, um, and so I think what we've learned is that to n- to not make it a taboo subject allows the process to of what a person goes through when they experience a loss to work more effectively. We know for a fact that people who are coming into treatment, going through treatment, been through treatment, and been in recovery for a long time, you know they've dealt with loss some of the reasons people started using were behind loss. We know a lot of you know kids that we that we treat had, had in treatment over the years you know started using when they lost a grandparent, lost a parent um It kind of started started them on that road you know that was their traumatic event so to speak um and and for for others a, a lot um that are that are in this recovery realm you know experiencing loss that was just you know like a piling on you know for other things that they were experiencing in their life and all of a sudden they lose someone close to them it just adds on top of it on top of it on top of it and all these things got to get peeled away you know, when you when you when you get into an environment where there's an opportunity to now deal with these things, you got to peel all that back. So we know there's, you know, there's an emotional aspect to it. Uh, when we did the show the last time, we we talked about the seven stages of grief and how there's no, you know, like correct order no um no one knows at at which stage they will enter the grief process. Um, but what what we do know is that you must allow yourself to experience them all. Um you're going to experience them, so it's uh as Steve Cunyon, and you guys don't know who he is, you might have heard me mention him before, but uh he was one of uh the counselors at Swan Lake who played a role in mentoring us trainees. One of his favorite terms was embrace, embracing it. Whatever the feelings were, whatever the experience was, embracing that experience. Don't run from it. Don't hide from it. Don't run in the closet. Embrace it. And so in experiencing the stages of grief that a person is going to go through, it's very important that whatever stage they either enter the process or whatever stage they're going through in the process, that they embrace each stage regardless of how that stage may feel. And different stages will feel different to different people because the circumstances behind the loss is different. For example, even though our co-host, our humble co-host, was to a certain extent thinking at some point in the future that his father was going not going to survive the leukemia doesn't mean that, let's say, if he lived out the projected length of term, Um, and was now in month seven or eight and was, you know, winding down, so to speak, and you can see the process of transitioning starting to evolve, doesn't mean that that eliminates any one of the stages. It may mean that a particular stage, because of how the process evolved, may be less emotionally um, overwhelming than if it was a different circumstance you know how a person uh, emotionally deals with and uh, experiences the stages when they lose a child when there's an unexpected death of someone in their quote unquote prime or um, um, even a parent who has lived a full life and you know you know they're not going to live forever but uh the, the the relationship you had and, and how close you were um doesn't lessen the, the the emotion of the passing anymore. It may in that circumstance, however, like I said, uh impact different stages. So using my I'll use myself as an example when my father passed away in two thousand eight Although none of us, he has six children, not one of us at any time talked about, and he was dealing with different uh, issues at the time, Um, but it never entered our mind about him passing. Not that we knew that that wasn't going to happen at some point. He eventually passed. He just turned 81, I believe um and jo- and now we can now we joke after he passes away we joke that he you know, it was a disappointment to his mother cuz she lived to be 95 and he didn't even come close to that even make 90 that's how we joke about him now but um you know it it was even you know he'd been dealing with uh various issues for you know at least 10 years and so you just figure that he's just going to continue to deal with them and then you know whatever his time is he's going to be Whenever his number is called, his number is called, um, and then it just happens, you know, just like that. And before you know it, you get the phone call, and boom, done. And and now, you know, you have to, you know, you enter you want, you enter a different uh, realm emotionally for that, but it's key. It's key to understand that you have to let the body experience it. I used to tell clients, you know, obviously they, they didn't know anything about feelings when they come to treatment. You know, we spent so many so many years medicating our feelings. All of a sudden, and, and you've heard some of our callers and some of the faxes we read. You know, I've been in treatment thirty days now, and I'm just overwhelmed with all these feelings. You know, well, yeah, I mean, you you when you when you medicate or block them for so long and all of a sudden you stop you know they're all going to come rushing to the front door you know come rushing to the front and it's and it's overwhelming and this experience of grief is similar is can be overwhelming i believe if we talked about it more as families as friends and so on and so forth then when the time comes And again, it doesn't eliminate the emotionality that a person will experience, but it it impacts the intellectual understanding. And that's irrespective of anyone's religious, um, what religion they are, uh, what the rituals may be of that religion or lack thereof, if you're not a religious person um etc it doesn't it doesn't matter it's whether or not have you ever talked about this process because at some point and <laughs> you're going to leave the physical world um so it makes sense to uh ha- have have conversation about it i wrote on the the topic and i'm going to get to that um about death, destruction, despair, or is it death, the divine dichotomy? So I'm going to talk a little bit about what that means in a few minutes. Uh, As I said before, the transition anniversary of the late great Joe Williams was last Tuesday. I believe they have his official date of passing as December 2nd, which was a Saturday in 2006. Um... But for those of us who are close to him, uh, his brother, myself, my wife, my kids, uh, we believe he passed away on November 30th, but he was found on December 2nd. Um, so I always honor him with a couple of things. I play a couple of the songs that he liked, which I will do, and uh, tell a story or two. So I'm going to tell a story. And hopefully I'll be able to get another one in before I run out of time today. Uh, The first story I'm going to tell is called the Flat Tire Story. Summer of 1982. Nice summer. Nice and warm. Hazy, hot, and humid. August in New York. Time I was driving a 1969 Pontiac Grand Prix. I have a 1970 Pontiac Grand Prix right now which I guess one of my children will decide what they're going to do with it. Um, and we're driving down, we live in Queens, uh, South Jamaica, Queens, and we're driving down Guyar Brewer Boulevard, and uh, it sounds like I'm getting a flat tire on my passenger rear. Right side, left side, no, right side, right side rear tire. So, of course... No big deal. We're both, not only are we both mechanically inclined, we're both, you know, young, exchange a flat tire, no problem. So, you know, we're at the side of the road. It's it's a regular, uh, you know, inner city street, you know, short uh, stores and shops on both sides. So, you know, it's busy traffic wise, but we have enough space to pull over into a little parking little side of the road. I, I think we were even at a bus stop. So uh, picture in a bus stop. And um, you know, I'm off to the side, Joe's jacking it up, you know, getting the tire out and so on and so forth and, you know, putting the tire on and we're just talking about something. I don't remember what we were talking about. But I'll, there's a lesson to this by the way, I'm gonna get to. So he wraps it up. We got the old style uh you know, the four the four the four star thing that you use to tighten the lugs up and whatnot, putting that on and Whatnot? Well, okay, we're good to go. Spare tires on, it's got air in it. All right, let's get rolling. Wherever we're going, we're back on the road. We travel maybe, I don't know, a hundred feet, and we start to hear this noise. I can't even describe what it sounds like. It's 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 like uh it, it's better to describe the feeling in the car. It the car was like rocking from left to right, but in the rear, like like you know, like the rear wasn't a part of the front of the car anymore. We was like, What the hell is going on here? So we pull over, get I get out the car, and I look down at the, the tire. I, I tell as soon as I looked what happened. What did what what did my dear friend Joe forget to do? He forgot to tighten the lug nuts. <laughs> You know, when you change a tire, one of the things you do, you put the tire on, you hand put the lug nuts on, you get them all on, get it lined up, you know, get the tire on, put all the five lug nuts on or four, if you got a four, a four lug nut wheel, and then you go around and tighten them in rotation, you know, to get it, you know, and there's a a method that you do to cross go it so that you get an even tighten of the wheel. Well, he, what you we would distracting I distracted him through our just talking back and forth and he just hand tightened the lugs and that was it. Wiped his hands, put the jack back in the car, put the other tire back in the trunk, and we went about our business. I said that is the last time you're ever gonna change a tire. Now the the sidebar to that story is years later we're in California, early nineties, I'm coming from San Francisco in my Grand Prix irony just approaching San Francisco International Airport, those of you who live locally know where I'm talking about, coming southbound. And I'm in the number four lane. For you New Yorkers, that's like the number three lane, the fast lane. How New York deals with only three lanes and most of their highways, I would never know. I can imagine what it's like back there now because there was a lot of traffic when I lived back there. But I digress. And it is raining like crazy. I mean, crazy for California. Regular rain, you know, steady rain from New York, but raining like crazy for California. And I get a flat. I'm cruising at like 75, 80 miles an hour, which is like 150 for cars of today. And, uh, of course, I call my buddy. Didn't have AAA at the time. said, yo, I got a flat. I'm over here by the airport. Can you come give me a hand? Uh, I don't even know if I got a spare tire, et cetera, et cetera. And he arrives. I said, Okay. Remember what happened twelve years ago? <laughs> twelve years ago, I said so. I'm not going to say a word. Uh, I'm just going to watch. Made sure that he put all the lug nuts on, and made sure he used the thing and tighten them until you hear that little eh, when you know it's gotten when it's lug nuts locked on there tight. Thank them for coming out in the rain because that's what we did. You know, if we broke down somewhere, it was on and we were we were each other's triple A. So. No matter what time in the morning, what time of the night, gotta go. That was the agreement. So he came out in the rain and helped me change the tire on the highway. Dangerous on the side of the highway on the shoulder, um, and that was that. That's the flat tire story. He forgot to tighten the lug nuts, and luckily we didn't just pull off and you know, you know. Back then we used to turn our span our tires and you know, youth. We were dumb. Luckily, we just eased off and, you know, to approach the traffic light and just felt the back of the car wiggling. What the hell was going on? So that's the flat tire story. All right. Um, Is it death, destruction, or despair? Well, many of our clients, that's what it felt like when they experienced loss while they were out there, especially if they experienced it during during the life, while they were in their addiction. You know, on top of what I'm dealing with, being an addict, especially when you arrive, everyone arrives at a point in the life when you know you're an addict. Even if you don't verbally admit it, orally admit it, outwardly to another person you know inwardly that you're an addict and so if you have this additional experience that comes during that time just adds on top of it that's a destruction part it's like especially if it's obviously we're just talking about if it's someone close to you um, a family member that's very close to you or some other loved one that's close to you you know the destruction it kind of fuels the use even more. And with with use, everyone can identify with who's used and who's been an addict, who's been in the life, the times you felt despair. That how am I getting out of this? Is there a way out of this? Well, imagine when additional trauma is added on top of that. What that despair feels like. How am I going to deal with those feelings? You know the feelings of grief are like magnified 10, 20-fold than the other feelings you maybe experience that are connected to, the reasons why you're doing what you're doing. So it just adds on top of it. I say death, the divine dichotomy. Let's talk about what a dichotomy first is first. A dichotomy Two things that appear to be or are actually opposite of each other, but that exist at the same time in reality. So it's a dichotomy that two truths that appear to be different, opposing, but exist at the same time. So I add to that I call it the divine dichotomy. When we get a client who comes in and at some point in the process we find out that, you know, loss is a part of the issues that they have to deal with and peel back and uncover and resolve before they leave the treatment process, not only do we have to somehow get them to talk about that, whether that's through a group process or an individual process. I don't care what process. My only thing is I want them to, that that has to be resolved. It has to be resolved. You can't leave without that being resolved. So when I want to talk to someone, and and this is informally, whether we're sitting down at the dining room table, whether we're sitting down to have lunch or breakfast or whatever, okay, wherever we're sitting informally to talk about this, I like to try and flip the script on them a little bit. We already know about the negative feelings that are associated with it. They're all identified in the, the, in, in the stages. Let me, let me name them. Shock and denial. Pain and guilt. Anger and Bargaining depression, loneliness. So those are, we term those as negative feelings. But they're necessary feelings. They're what you're going to feel. There's no way to escape from them. There's no way to hide from that, okay? So when we get past, let's, 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 Let's pretend that we're past a stage of shock and denial. Okay? We've accepted the reality of the loss. Okay? We have felt the pain of the loss, the emotionality of the loss. The circumstances of the loss determine whether or not guilt is going to play a part in it. And with our clients, I would say that that would be the case. You know, if someone passed away while they were locked up, you know, a lot of times a parent passes while someone's in prison and they weren't able to go to the funeral or they weren't able to be there. You know, their, their life before they went into prison was such that uh, that they ended up in prison. OK, so there's some guilt associated with that. So that has to be dealt with. The anger the circumstances dictate what that may be. Is it angry at someone else? Th- the cause um, that you weren't there to support the person during dur- you know during this process. If it was an illness that progressed to the eventual transition, the circumstance will determine that. The depression, the loneliness. So I'm going to stop at the loneliness because the one thing that I think in the treatment environment that we can possibly convince is they're not alone in this. That there are others here who aren't just sympathetic but can be empathetic. Sympathetic meaning. I can express sorrow for what you're going through. Empathetic. I can identify. I've been there. I've experienced the same thing. I've experienced loss also. So there's no doubt in my mind that somewhere in the family, somewhere in the family, there is going to be, We well, we know there's going to be sympathy, but Somewhere in the family, we know that we can find empathy. So we can at least say, you're not alone in dealing with this. Because so-and-so over here, so-and-so over there, this person over there, they, they also have experienced loss. And you should talk with them. You all should talk with each other. Start sharing about it. Talking about what? What do we spend every waking day in the treatment program saying? Talking about what? Talking about your feelings. How does it feel? How did it feel? How does it feel? If it's the first time you're looking at it and addressing it. And and name the feelings. And sometimes in the treatment environment, it's the first time that people are even, uh, you know, dealing with this stuff. Yeah, they may have, uh, you know, heard about it, experienced it on the outside, but as far as really digging into it and 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 and, and, and talking about it, where the 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 you know, and by the way, more importantly talking about it not under the influence, experiencing it not under the influence. That's the key here. I don't want to make sure that wasn't lost lost in the conversation. It's dealing with this, accepting this, resolving this, talking about this while not being able to medicate your feelings. So the feelings are just out there raw. And we say, now, now it's time to start talking. It's time to start talking. And if the, and once they start talking, there's going to be some feeling. And you just feel whatever it is that you feel. And you continue to talk, you continue to feel. Our job is to just identify where you're at in this process so that we can know the best way to help you. Are you stuck at shock and denial? Are you still dealing with the pain and the guilt? are you still are you st- still angry and in that bargaining mode are you in a state of depression and feeling lo- loneliness due to the loss and the only way we find that out is by the person talking you can get a sense and a feel for where they're at you know i said earlier that you know, different religions have different ways of uh, of not only talking about death, but even how they deal with it um, in the religious context and then in the rituals that they do. And there's similarities in all of them. If you read, read up about them, you'll see there's similarities in, in all of them. And I'm a proponent of looking at what's where things are similar rather than where they're different. Um, when 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 you take let's say there's five different, there's probably not five, but let's say that there's five just for the sake of discussion. And in the five, you can find similarities in all five. That tells me that they're all that somewhere along the line, as they have been developed, they've been founded on some common principle. And then where the differences may occur may either be cultural, related to uh, ethnic practices, societal practices, depending on where you might li- what part of the world you might live in, etc. So we can probably account for some of those, and then there's a small percentage of stuff that people just made up no know where it came from. That if a person wants to look at it logically, uh, intellectually, not emotionally, intellectually, it doesn't even make any sense. There's a small amount of that in there. So we don't deal with that. We don't deal with that. We try and approach it from an intellectual perspective to help the person go through the emotional process and get to the intellectual part of dealing with the loss. And by the way, I think we all know this that the the emotional aspect of loss never leaves. Um, it's because if you've had an emotion, if you have an emotional connection to the person, there's always going to be an emotional aspect of the loss that stays with you. Um, however, the goal is is that the emotional aspect of the loss is no longer going to be so overwhelming or so impactful that it prevents you from moving on with your life. Number one. Or it's so overwhelming or so impactful that you choose to not deal with it at all and think that it's just going to go away. Well, you follow you wherever you go. You can run, but you can't hide. So... If you have the luxury of being in the treatment environment, I would say, now is the time. Whatever it is, no matter how bad it is, how ugly it is, let's deal with it here. I called it a topic, delving into the shallows of a subject often avoided, but certainly often experienced. We all experience it. All right. As is the case last time, uh, the same thing this time. This is a heavy topic. takes a lot of energy out of you talking about it. Um, we're at the top of the hour. We're going to take our usual top of the hour music break. We're going to come back on the other side and uh, do some recovery support. I'm going to talk a little bit about... Uh, Thanksgiving, holiday had just passed, and what is there to be thankful for in recovery, then we'll take some calls and uh definitely read some questions uh from the X file. So uh we'll be back right after this uh music break. <laughs>
0: Up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you.
1: Hey, welcome back to Roach on Recovery. Uh, so, before we hit recovery support time, I want to clean up a couple of things. I never told you what the divine dichotomy was. I said death and divine dichotomy. So, I'm going to read it to you, and then explain it very quickly. This is what I wrote to Mister, our humble co-host, after I found out about the passing of his father. Linda and I are happy. To hear that your father has successfully transitioned to reunite with his earthly partner, your Nana. We offer our deepest condolences, sympathy, and empathy to you, your wife, and the family left behind to grieve the loss. We hope even while in the midst of your grief, you remember to celebrate the life of your father. What's the dichotomy? You're happy, and you're also sad. We're happy that his father didn't suffer. We're happy that he went on his terms. We're sad that our humble co-host, his wife, his family, have to grieve the loss because that's an experience that they have to go through. Again, close behind the loss of his mother. And that's what I mean about the divine dichotomy, how it could be on one hand the ability to see the beauty in the life and death cycle, and on the other hand, the people who are left behind, that they have to now deal with their loved one moving on. That's the definition of the divine dichotomy on this subject. There's no better time for Thanksgiving than in treatment. I tell you, in Daytop, it was wonderful. And in OCG, we tried to duplicate and make it the same. So for all the alumni and clients that are out there, uh, no longer in the residential programs, but in the outpatient programs who listen to the show, We hope you guys experienced Thanksgiving back at the facilities because we invite everyone to come back. Um, Children, families, whomever, come to the facilities and eat. That's an old tradition, by the way, that we've kept from data. So just wanted to clean those two things up. All right, we're going to move into recovery support time. Uh, We have no call screener. So you know what the rules are. I'm going to ask you your first name and your hometown, and then we go from there. So I go through, let's see, who's been holding the longest? Let's go to... Hi, welcome to the show. Can I have your first name, please, and your hometown?
6: Hi, um, I'm Eric Gamboa, and my hometown is San Francisco, California.
1: Hi, Eric. Welcome to the show. How can I help you?
6: Yeah. How's it going? Uh, I just have a question. Um, How can I successfully dedicate myself to recovery if I'm surrounded by people who don't?
1: Well, when you decided to take on and enter into recovery, okay, which is I call like entering into a new life, okay? Yes. Did you go in by yourself? Yes. So then it's all about you, not about those around you. So even if those around you aren't serious, aren't supportive, aren't dedicated aren't focused that should have no bearing on you follow me? yes okay I got it doesn't mean it'll make it easy that's true it'll certainly give you some trials and tribulations that you'll have to overcome and you'll be the better for it when you come out on the other side
2: Okay. Okay? All right, cool. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, who's next up here? Hello? Hi. Hi. Welcome to the show. Can I have your first name, please, in your hometown?
2: Um, Linda, San Francisco. Hi, welcome. I'm just wondering. Oh, thank you. I was wondering, how can you tell your old friends you don't live like that anymore? That you're not going to associate with them anymore because you're straightening up your life.
1: Are these old friends that are still living a negative lifestyle? Yes. Uh, you have to do one thing, and this is how I phrase it. You have to woman up. You have to woman up.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: You got to set, you got to set, you got to set, you have to set, this is very important. Mm -hmm. You have to set your boundaries, okay, set your boundaries, define your boundaries, and the most important part, the part that people always, always, always forget, and it's the most important part, they set their boundaries, and then you got to enforce it.
2: Okay, enforce it.
1: And that's the womaning, womaning up part. Means that you know, like you'd say to a man, you got a man up, you got a woman up. It ain't gonna be easy sometimes telling someone that you you hung with before that. Look, I'm not about that anymore.
2: Yep. All right. Thank you.
1: Okay. You're very welcome. You have a good day. You too. Bye bye. To
2: your radio show. Bye.
1: Thank you. We teach all the time about setting boundaries, and, you know, you set boundaries for different reasons, different circumstances, but that's the easy part, you know, setting them, you know, verbalizing what they are, defining them, but don't think for one second that – that noise in the background, by the way, is the air conditioner in case you're wondering – don't think for one second that those boundaries are not going to be tested. Oh, they're going to be put to the test, and your ability and your commitment to enforcing them are going to be severely tested, especially by the old friends who are still living the life. And that's why, again, I'm a big fan of role-playing that. If you know that's what you're going back to, if you know you're going to be confronted with that, let's role-play it. I'll be I'll be the you know the the old friend and you'll be who you are and let's let's play it out let's see how it's I want to see what your response is going to be when I approach you how you're going to you know it's okay to have to practice what you're going to say how you're going to respond because I always say don't disrespect anybody don't uh in your in the process of process of enforcing your boundaries, you can do it in a fashion that does not diminish the other person. If anything, you want to be a role model because you never know who might see what you're doing and that be a catalyst for them changing their lives. That's to remember where you came from part. So we we don't go back to the old neighborhood and act or be better than and have that attitude. No, you were once there. If anything, you try and pull somebody else up who might show a willingness to, you know, where you've been, what you've been doing. You know, I went to straight my life out. I'm on a different path. Oh well, tell me about that. Where'd you go? I, you know, I'm, I'm out here doing this thing and I'm, and I'm trying to look for a way out. Well, let me tell you what I did. Maybe you can, you know, do the same thing never know how that opportunity is going to come for you to give it away to help somebody else just like you were helped but there are going to be the others that are going to try to you know bring you back down to where they currently still are and you got to be able to stand up and enforce that boundary okay let's go to Hi, may I have your first name, please, in your hometown?
6: Ricardo, and my hometown is San Mateo. Hi
1: Ricardo, welcome to the show. How can I help you?
6: Hi, um, I was wondering um how, how can I find a sponsor? Do
1: you do you go to um any of the 12 step groups?
6: Um, yes, I I go to I've been to a few.
1: Uh usually not all the time, just saying usually that's where you would find a sponsor. Have you not found anyone to your liking yet?
6: Um, I haven't really tried to ask anybody. Um, I don't know how I would approach them. Okay. I don't know what I
1: would have. I'm surprised because they're usually very pushy, (laughs) especially (laughs) if they find out you're new. Okay. So um, I would – it depends where you're at in terms of your need, you know what I'm saying, so if are you ready for a sponsor?
6: Um, I'm not sure about that either, like what um what are
1: like okay then the answer the answer is no, you're not ready, and that's okay that's okay there's there's no right or wrong answer to the question. I just want the answer what your truth is, and your truth is you're not ready, so what I would just. I would suggest to you continue to go, continue to go, and at some point you will know when you know when you're ready to, you know, have a sponsor. And a sponsor is just going to help you, guide you, and support you. And like I tell everybody, sometimes you might go and you you know there's no one there that you believe is going to fill that need for you. It doesn't have to be someone in the twelve step group. It could be someone outside the group. Okay. So right. keep your options open, okay?
6: Okay, thank you.
1: All right, you're very welcome. All right, bye. Bye bye. Okay. Let's go to Hi, can I have your first name please in your hometown?
6: Uh hi, I'm I'm Dan from uh, Gilroy.
1: Hi, Dan, welcome to the show. Alright, uh, thank you. Um so I had a question, I um I've been thinking about going into a residential treatment program, and I was just wondering how do I know how long I should stay and when it's time to go? Well, you you should not, if you're thinking about going to get help, you shouldn't go in there with your own treatment plan. You shouldn't go in with any preconceived notion of how much, quote-unquote, time you may need. That that answer is usually determined by, you know, how long have you been out there using? Is it just been a year? Has it been oh, five years, ten years, fifteen years? How many years? Fifteen, good. 15, fifteen, twenty years. Okay. So my rule of thumb usually is when someone's been using, you know, for a long extended period of time, I always say, look, if you've been using that long, then I think you deserve you are worth to at least give 12 months of your life to getting back on a positive lifestyle track.
5: Definitely.
6: Now, how
1: how that manifests itself in terms of how long you might be in a residential program, how long you might be in an outpatient program, nobody knows in advance. But at least you could say, I, I can dedicate one year of my life to trying to get my life back in. Okay. You're worth it.
5: Thank you very much.
1: You're very welcome. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. The day I entered Daytop in Far Rockaway, Queens, and I asked the guy at the front desk, you know, how long – I had my own treatment plan, by the way, when I walked in. I said, you know, I only need about six months, straighten myself out, clear my head, and I should be good to go. And I asked the guy at the front desk, hey, how long is this program? When he said 18 months or more, I almost picked up my bags and walked out. My sister grabbed my arm and said, hey, wait a second, cowboy. So you can't walk in with your own treatment plan. It's almost a guarantee of failure. Let those who know tell you or however long it takes. Your life is worth it. You've been using it for 15 years. You should be able to give up 12 months of your life to get your life back on track. That's just my thought. Okay, let's go to... Hi, can I have your first name, please, and your hometown?
6: Hello, my name is Alex. I'm from San Jose.
1: Hi, Alex. Welcome to the show. Hello. How can I help you?
6: Um, I have a question. Is it worse to have more of a bad behavior sober or have a not so bad of behavior rather than being high.
1: Is it worth to have bad behavior?
6: Sober rather than high?
1: Sober rather than high. Yes. Well, Well, both are bad, but if you're sober and you have bad behavior, that tells us something more about you. At least we can rationalize why you may be behaving badly if you're not sober.
6: Yeah.
1: Follow me? But if you're sober if you're sober and you're still behaving badly then that tells us there's something else going on. So it doesn't make a difference whether you're sober or not, you still got a behavior problem.
6: Yes, I understand that. Yeah, because, you know, that's, that's one thing I have noticed is, you know, regardless if I'm in my addiction or not, I'm always really negative and stuff like that. And, you know, I still haven't gotten a therapist yet, but I've been trying to look for one.
1: Well, don't give up on that. And number two, keep in mind that that doesn't change overnight. But you know what I like? I like what I'm hearing. I like the fact that you're aware of it. That's half the battle, being aware of it.
6: Yep. At least least I acknowledge it.
1: Exactly. That's half the battle. The next step, and this is where the counselor or the therapist can help you, is, okay, what can I do to now start working on it and making changes? Yep. Follow me?
6: Yes. I just can't wait to see the progress.
1: You've already made progress.
6: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I guess you're right, huh?
1: You've, yeah, you've already made progress. Now we're just going to take it another step, step yep. by step by step. Okay, baby steps. That's right.
6: Okay, thank you very much.
1: You're very welcome. Bye bye. Um. Oftentimes, people need others on the exterior to tell them when they have made change, made progress, because sometimes we can't see it. We're so used to, you know, bad and ugly, negative thinking that we just can't see it. Someone else has to point it out for us. So one of the things I'm consistently always reminding the staff team is, you know, as well as telling the family to you know point out to the younger members when you see progress and change and so on and so forth you know we as a staff also have to do the same thing because they're not seeing it within themselves they, they haven't advanced to that stage yet where they can see change we have to tell them the difference between you today and the you 2 weeks ago wow, even if it's small, we have to give that to them. It's very important. All right, I'm going to uh, get a couple of X-File questions. And I'm the only one on the studio today, so I'm trying to watch the clock, deal with the phone lines. It's a lot of stuff. Uh, let's see here. Who do we got? Beatrice, and I cannot read the city, so I apologize, but do you think moving away from where I lived in my addiction is essential to my recovery? My answer is no. It is not essential to your recovery to move away from where you lived during your addiction. Why do I say that? Well, the reality is that most people aren't able to do that. Most people, you know, if they're fortunate enough to be able to get into treatment, they go into treatment, they complete treatment, and they go back to where they lived until, you know, if opportunity presents itself for them to move somewhere else for whatever reason they do. But we try and deal with the reality of the person's situation. If they have to go back to wherever they came from in terms of, you know, housing-wise, that's what we prepare you for. That's what you need to prepare yourself for. You can get drugs anywhere. Doesn't make a difference. You can't run. You don't think you can, you know, move to Beverly Hills and run, to to run and hide from drugs. Drugs are everywhere. We already know alcohol is everywhere. So we want to make sure that you are, you know, when you walk out those doors, you're strong enough to 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 live in recovery. Doing the right thing, making the right decisions, regardless of what environment you may live in. That's my goal for a client. Antoine from San Francisco. I've been clean for eight months. My boyfriend drinks still. Even though alcohol wasn't my drug of choice, should I leave him or can we stay together? That depends. It depends So we don't know from the question when they they use the word drinks, whether that's, you know, socially or are you saying he's an alcoholic? That's number one. Number two, during the period of your eight months of sobriety, was there a conversation that took place regarding the other parties drinking and where you stood on that? So I can only obviously use what he wrote. So it appears that there hasn't been a conversation yet. Um, And I think, you know, asking the question, should I leave him? So that's the extreme, one extreme reaction or or answer. Um, And can we stay together is the other extreme. So stay or leave, two extremes. So let's not try and live in either extreme. Let's try and find out, okay, what's this, what, 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 and this is what, the, if I was his counselor and he brought this question to me, obviously the first thing, can you define what you mean by his drinking? Is he drinking like an alcoholic or is he a social drinker? Is it controlled? Um, is he drinking every single night? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd, I would find out that information and. Let's say it got to the point you know based on the information that he, that came out that you know well, yeah, this person is an alcoholic, their drinking is destructive it's it, it appears that it has been destructive to the relationship, so uh that means we're now in a position where you have to draw a line in the sand, and this is very hard for people because you're basically telling another person, another human being okay that you care about that you may be in love with or or whatever the case may be that look it's either going to be you and I in this relationship drug free sober etc or you're going to have to choose one or the other you're going to have to choose either the drinking or you're going to have to choose me now that may sound unfair even that is extreme in terms of you know the line in the sand but i always say when it comes to recovery you have to be the good selfish it's it's about you and if there is something that's existing in a intra personal relationship that is going to threaten your recovery process you're going to have to make a decision and the decision separates the girls from the women and the boys from the men and it gets back to back to that boundaries thing again, because if you're saying if you if you make a statement that you know what I'm setting a boundary definition, I don't want alcohol drugs around me. Period. Okay, you just defined your boundary. Are you going to now be willing to enforce it, especially when it comes to an interpersonal relationship? Take some guts, and that's usually where people kind of wilt.er So. We'll see. Let's see. We've got some time, so let's go back to the phones. Hi, welcome to the show. Can I have your first name, please, and your hometown? Hi, my name is Sadiq from Oakland. Hey, Steve. Welcome. Uh, My question is,
7: is it true that to find the strength to maintain sobriety, you need to maintain it for yourself? So is it fair to say that you can get sober for your family or for someone else, but is it fair to say that to maintain sobriety, you need to find the strength within
1: yourself for yourself? Yes. I don't care why you entered the recovery realm. I don't care what motivated you, whether it was your family, your dog, your job, Whatever it is, I'll take anything to get you in. But by the time you leave, that motivation has to have changed to be about you. Because no other motivation will succeed long term. So when people say, you know, I'm getting clean for my kids, wonderful. But at some point, I want to hear those words change to, you know what, I got to do this for me because mm-hmm. unless I'm correct there's no way I can help my children unless I'm correct there's no way I can help my my wife I can't help my family so I want to mm-hmm. at some point hear that flip but as far as starting the process I'll take any reason any reason to get your foot in the door any reason to get you in the door and then I'll then I'll work you over while I got you <laughs> <laughs> All right. well, Ultimately, you. it's got to become about you. Yes. All right. That'll okay. Confirm. Yeah. All right. All
7: right. Thank you very much.
1: You're very welcome. Have a good night. Bye bye. Hi, welcome to the show. Can I have your first name, please, and your hometown?
7: My name is Joaquin Vigil from South City, and I have a question about. Just getting into a relationship And not knowing if um Having thoughts Of um The other person That I'm interested in Possibly drinking But not I don't know I'm kind of like scared to Confront her Because I feel like you know I already know that she's going to Try to lie or something like that And you know I just don't know The best way of dealing with
1: that. So, I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to I don't want you to think. I want you to respond from your truth. What are you afraid of?
7: I'm afraid of her lying to me because she's known for lying and okay, being manipulative
1: all right I'm gonna take it a little bit deeper if she if from your perspective she's she lies to you, what is she doing or saying to you?
7: Well, basically on certain other questions that I've asked her in the past, I found out that you know. She wasn't being totally truthful, and then when she tried to be truthful,
1: she... Let's say that... Let's let's say, Joaquin, let's say that's a given, that she's being untruthful. But as a result of that action of her being untruthful, what is she ultimately doing or saying to you personally?
7: Well, because that's the whole thing. Like, I... Totally love her, and uh, I haven't been able to come up to ask her about that because I've heard her in her voice, but then you know, even though I know that sounds like she's drunk, though.
1: What, right, is, so what if she says? What if she says to you, "Yeah, I've been drinking, and I'm drunk right now." Okay, so what are you gonna do?
7: Then I'm gonna. Talk about that, you know. I want I want her to open up about it. You know, I want her to be truthful and honest, and then start from there and letting her know that I'm not that type of person where I'm going to hang out with somebody else that's going to be drinking.
1: And if she you says know? so what? Well, I'm I'm going to continue drinking, you know. So what are you going to do?
7: Well, no, because then she's going to try to lie and not just. No,
1: no, no. The only thing is that th-
7: she's going to want to not want to drink around me or whatever but still drink when I'm not around.
1: But but And you're aware of that. So what are you going to do? Like, what do you mean? I was waiting for you to say that. I was just trying to get you to you saying, what do you mean by that? So, <laughs> <laughs> took a roundabout way, just waiting for you to say that. One of the most difficult things for men... Especially men, to fathom, to even realize, and you and I can be can talk about this for half an hour, and I can keep on questioning you for half an hour until, and you might get it, but we don't have a half an hour, so I'm going to get right to it. All right. When, if, if from your perspective, you you you're you're saying that my boundary is, I don't want drugs, alcohol negative stuff, the lifestyle around me. I don't want that anymore. Excuse me?
7: And lies and manipulation. But
1: right. You don't want you don't want none of that. No games, no nothing. You don't want none of that anymore.
7: No. But
1: that's what you're but that's what you're getting. Well and when I keep on asking you or when I kept on asking you, so since that's what she's giving you, what do you think she's actually saying to you? Well what for men it's very difficult for them to when I when I ask that question come up with the answer. You know what the answer is.
7: Uh, she's pretty much telling me that she's a liar and a manipulator.
1: No, no, she's not telling you that. You already know that. Okay, what she's telling yeah. you is what she's telling you is I'm rejecting you.
7: So was, so should I just go ahead and just, you know, like ask her no, I, and, you know, just no,
1: no, go no, from there? No, or? no, what I want you to do, I don't want you to do anything but for tonight only to just think about what I just said. Okay. her actions, as you know them to be, or what they're what they're actually truly deeply saying is I'm rejecting you. And let that sit with you for a little bit. See, rejection is very difficult to acknowledge. It is very painful, no matter what form it comes in. And especially when you're talking about a relationship, you're talking about somebody doing something that hey, you don't want to be a part of, you don't want them to do that and so on and so forth and they're still going to do it, okay? Their actions are actually saying to you that, you know what? I'm well, I'm rejecting you because I'm doing this. And it flies right over the head. It fl- especially for guys, it just flies right over the head. They can't they, they that feeling rejection is like one that doesn't even register. But it's at the core. It's at the root. So that's why I just want you to sit with that. Think about that. Feel that. And then, tomorrow, make a decision.
7: Okay. Yeah, because that's I'm sitting like here right now as you're talking, and I'm, i like almost caught the the right sense of what exactly you're talking about the the rejection of what she's saying and how she's going about it, and mm-hmm. definitely I'm gonna be taking a few days to really think about it deeply,
1: yep, yep,
7: to really understand what my next move would be, yep, and I'll definitely be giving you a call next week and um uh, talking about how that. Worked out.
1: <laughs> I'd be very interested in hearing about it.
7: All right. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time, and um, I'm gonna definitely, definitely be doing a lot of thinking about this. All right. Um, you know, this is like a, a lady that I truly love. You know what I mean? Uh, and, that's, um,
1: that's why it's painful to ke- even consider the rejection. That's why it goes and, over the head. Those fee- The feelings you have for her are very strong, and those feelings actually prevent you from even considering the fact that she's rejecting you. So exactly. let's talk next week after you get some time to really sit on that and think about that, all right?
7: All right. All right. All right. Thank you, man.
1: You're very welcome. Bye-bye. All Bye-bye. Right, Rejection is deep when it comes in on those type of levels, but that goes back to what we were talking about about when you when you're put in a position where you gotta set your boundaries and it's real hard in those interpersonal relationships and you're talking about lives and you're talking about your recovery and you got you're talking about you gotta be selfish for you to protect yourself and what you're trying to do. And the other person they don't want no part of that. They're living in a different lifestyle right now. What are you gonna do? You're gonna accept it? And just roll with it? Some do. And sometimes the result isn't, you know, what they planned. Doesn't work out positively. We say don't go in it with eyes wide shut. Go in it with eyes wide open, and we, what we mean by that is not only intellectually but understanding emotionally what's going on, so that when you make a decision, no one can say, "Well, I, I didn't, I didn't know." No, you know exactly how you feel, what's being done, how that's creating these those other feelings in you. What what the action the other person is doing is what what they're really saying by their actions. So it's not that she's lying not telling the truth no she's rejecting you that's what she's doing and that's that's hard to stomach for a lot of guys very hard to stomach okay that's all the time we have for today folks I want to thank all of our listeners callers and those who continue to fax or email in their recovery support time questions keep them coming We'll eventually get to them I got a stack An inch and a half They can only got to What Two today And those who continue To support our show In general We really appreciate Your participation And support We will be back Next Tuesday God willing So until then I want you to remember To keep our co-host And his family In your Uh Thoughts And prayers And We will uh Let another one Of Joe's favorites Take us on out of here So uh
0: our show for this evening thank you for listening be sure to listen to our next broadcast tuesday at 4 p.m pacific standard time on blog talk forward slash ocg radio like us friend us and follow us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash ocgworkca and on twitter at ocgworkca you can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio.
2: Some
0: day, some
2: night,